Welcome to the First Baptist Church Keller Sermon Podcast. Each week we make available sermons from Pastor Keith and our staff on our website, fbckeller.org. And on iTunes, search for First Baptist Church Keller TX in the iTunes Store or in the podcast app on your mobile device. And now here's our pastor, Keith Sanders. Let's open our Bibles, please, to the 11th chapter of Romans. Romans chapter 11. We've been in Romans a long time. We've been in Romans chapter 11 a long time. Uh, But today we come to the close of this section of Scripture. Chapters 9, 10, 11 are taken together. If you're familiar with Paul's style of writing, in almost all of his epistles, it follows the same template. He begins with deep doctrinal truth. And at some point, he comes to an end of the doctrine and he moves to practical application. Uh, In in practical terms, he says, here's who we are as believers, and now here's how we ought to behave as a result of who we are as believers. We see that very clearly in the book of Ephesians, the book of Colossians. It takes Paul a little longer in Romans to get to the practical application than it does in many of his books, but it begins in chapter 12, and we look forward to that. Now, we might expect Paul, having climbed this great 14,000-foot peak of theology, to move rapidly into the application. Uh, We're like that, aren't we? Uh, Your children, when someone takes a picture of a group, they're looking for who in the picture? Themselves, right? And we Christians sometimes are like that. Yes, that's wonderful, all this great theology, but what about us? What does this have to say to us? Where am I in the Bible? And Paul wasn't in a hurry to do that. In fact, he's climbed this mountain, and if you've ever climbed a mountain before, when you get to the top, you want to take a minute, don't you? to look around and see where you've come from and survey the beauty of God's creation. That's what Paul does. He stops at the top of the mountain at the end of chapter 11 and he just praises God for who he is. Now, Paul started in chapter one with the doctrine of anthropology, which is the study of humanity. And what he discovered about humanity was not very flattering to us, was it? We're all sinners. We fall short of the glory of God. And speaking of sin, he moves into the doctrine of sin, which is harmardiology. And we're eaten up with it. We're sinners by nature and we're sinners by choice. But the overarching doctrine of the book of Romans is soteriology, the doctrine of salvation. The question is, how can a man or woman be made right with God? We are sinners, but how can we be forgiven? And Paul's answer is justification by faith. That's the theme of Romans. He even dabbles, as we saw last week at the end of chapter 11, in eschatology, the study of last things. And Paul believed and taught that in the last days there was going to be a revival and a great ingathering of Jewish people. And so let's come now to that transitional portion the end of chapter 11, before we start chapter 12, which is simply a doxology. Doxology is a declaration of praise. Often in church settings like this, it's set to music and sung to the Lord. We heard this morning from our youth choir, probably the most famous doxology in all the New Testament, taken from Luke chapter 2, the words of the angels to the shepherds, glory to God in the highest, in Latin, gloria in excelsis Deo. Well, let's read Paul's doxology as he reflects on God's plan of salvation. Romans eleven thirty three, Oh, Paul says, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who became his counselor 
or who has first given to him that it might be paid back to him again? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. And may the Lord add his blessing to the reading of this, his word. Well, let's begin by breaking this doxology into three segments and deal with them each section one at a time. First, we have an exclamation, followed by two questions, and finally four prepositions. So let's look first at the exclamation in verse 33. He says, oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. Now, when someone says, oh, this could be one of two things. One is they're over 50 and they're sitting up or standing up. <laughs> most, most likely, though, it's a, somebody has come to a realization of something momentous and wonderful. And that's the case with the Apostle Paul. It's not a grand speech that he has poured over every syllable with a fine-tooth comb to get the words exactly right. It's a reflex response. When you go to the doctor for a physical and he tells you to cross your legs and he hits your kneecap with a rubber hammer and your knee flies up, that's a reflex response. You didn't plan to do it. It just happened. Well, Paul's exclamation here is a reflex. He's looking at thinking about God's salvation, God's knowledge, His wisdom, His omnipotence. And he says, oh, the depths of the riches of both the wisdom and knowledge of God. That's what he's amazed about. That's what he stands in wonder of, the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. Now, for three months, we have been studying in this room on Wednesday evening, many of the attributes of God. An attribute is simply a characteristic. God has graciously revealed himself to us in the scripture so that we can know some of what he's like. Now, God wants us to worship Him and to know Him as He truly is. He cares incredibly that we worship the right God in the right way. The evidence of that is in Exodus chapter 20, among other places. When God gave Moses 10 commandments, 20% of those, two of the 10, were about how to rightly worship Him. He says, don't have any other gods before me. That is, you need to think of me as supreme and sovereign. And then He says, don't make any graven images. Don't try to carve something that you can worship because I'm transcendent, I'm above and beyond all of that. Any image we try to make and worship is by necessity going to fall short of the reality. So God says, don't do it. A.W. Tozer, famous theologian, says, what we think about God is the most important thing about us. And I think he's right. God wants us to worship in spirit and in truth. Now, there are some churches who tell you the most important thing about worship is enthusiasm. <laughs> to worship enthusiastically. And so they attempt to, to whip the congregation up into some emotional frenzy and equate that with worshiping in spirit. Well, Paul wants us to worship enthusiastically, but he wants us to worship God enthusiastically about what is true, not about what we perceive or what we think. And what Paul is most enthusiastic about, that is true, concerning God's knowledge and his wisdom. Let's take each of those separately. What does it mean when he talks about God's knowledge? Well, knowledge is simply the practical understanding of a subject. So what does the Bible have to say about God's understanding about any subject? Well, three words. It's unmeasurable, it's perfect, and it's total. Now, theologians take that description and they've come up with a word called omniscient. Omni meaning all, science, knowledge. He knows all. This is one of his attributes we studied here. He knows all things 
and he knows all things equally well. That's biblical. Psalm 147.5 says, Great is our Lord and abundant in power. His understanding is beyond measure. We can't measure it. Job 37.16, Do you know the balancing of the clouds, the wondrous works of him who is perfect in knowledge? He's perfect. 1 John 3.20, For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart, and he knows what? Everything. And so put it all together, his knowledge is unmeasurable, Perfect in total, he is omniscient. Paul is standing amazed at the omniscience of God. And he just spontaneously breaks out in praise. But he's also amazed by God's wisdom. Now wisdom is the application of knowledge to make the best and highest decisions and judgments. God wants his children to make the best and highest decisions and judgments. We call this a communicable attribute. That is, he wants us to be like him in this area. Now, probably everyone in this room has known someone in your life who you would describe as exceptionally intelligent, but you would say they are not exceptionally wise. Someone maybe who had a 4.0 grade point average, maybe earned advanced degrees in science and physics, and yet they were unemployable because they could not make good and sound decisions. Well, Paul is saying of God, not only is he omniscient, not only does he know everything and everything is equally well, he can take that knowledge to make the best and highest decisions and judgments. And as I said, he wants us to do the same. James 1.5 says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given to him. And then describing that heavenly kind of wisdom in chapter 3, he says, but the wisdom which is from above... Now, a good portion of the early part of the book of James is to differentiate two kinds of wisdom. There's the wisdom from above that comes from God, and there is the wisdom of this world and its system. And let me tell you, what you want is the wisdom from above, not the wisdom of this world. And so James says the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. Now, Paul takes two more words back in Romans 11 to describe God's wisdom. He says God's wisdom is unsearchable and unfathomable. Now, that word unsearchable comes from a pathway or a road. I was greatly disappointed back during COVID a couple years ago when my favorite restaurant, the El Paseo, went out of business. That was one of the places I could go at lunch and have a business meeting and hear myself think and had good food. And it was right along the path that leads to all the main buildings in the Keller Town Center. So the name of the restaurant was El Paseo, which I understand means the path. And this is what Paul is saying. If you try to go down a road pursuing the end of God's wisdom, you'll never make it to the end. And then the second word is a nautical term, a term from ocean faring. It's unfathomable. You know that before they had sonar equipment, the way the sailors had to see how deep the water was by casting a rope over, and they would count the knots, and the, the uh, measuring stick for water depth is a fathom. And so if something is unfathomable, you can't reach the bottom. So when Paul's describing the wisdom of God, he says, you can't reach the end of the road of it, and you can't reach the bottom of it. It's that deep. And so Paul is just spontaneously praising God for his knowledge and his wisdom. Now, secondly, 
Paul asks two questions, verses 34 and 35. He says, For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who became his counselor? Or who has first given to him that it might be paid back to him again? Well, technically three questions, but two question marks, and so I'm calling it two questions. Once again, Paul is appealing to the Old Testament scriptures to make his point. This is Paul's MO. He lays out a doctrinal truth, and then rather trying to convince us intellectually, he quotes Old Testament scripture. And in this case, it's Isaiah again, Isaiah chapter 40, which says, Who has known the mind of the Lord? Now, he doesn't answer the question. It's assumed. Let me ask you, who perfectly knows the mind of God? No one. I asked the last crowd to raise their hand, but I'm afraid to do that this time. No one. You don't know the mind of the Lord perfectly, neither do I. In fact, the Bible says no one does because there is certain knowledge the Bible says God has reserved for himself in the secret counsel of the Most High. The secret things of God, the Bible calls it. Now, why would God hold back on us? Well, it's not because he doesn't love us. That's what Satan tried to trick Eve and Adam with. It's because I think he knows we lack the capacity to fully comprehend God. Now, that can happen physically. We can lack the physical capacity anymore to do certain things. Moses wanted to see God visibly, didn't he? And he asked God to let him see him. But God knew that Moses couldn't handle that. So he put him in the cleft of the rock. And he caused himself to walk by. And Moses was allowed to see, as it were, the hinder parts of God. He saw just a little glimpse. And that was enough to make Moses' face glow for days. Had to wear a veil. God knew if he saw him in his full-orbed glory, Moses would be evaporated on the spot. Because he didn't have the capacity to comprehend God's glory. Well, we don't have the capacity to understand all the things of God. He is gracious, though, to let us know enough about him that we can have a right relationship with him. He's given us the ability to know the gospel, and he's gracious to do so. Scripture says there in this same book of Isaiah, speaking of God's capacity, that the nations, that is all the nations of the earth collectively, are but a drop in the bucket to God. Did you know that phrase originated in the Bible? A drop in the bucket. That's all the knowledge of all the nations of the earth compared to God are a drop in the bucket. Now, uh, the second question he asks is, to whom is God indebted? That is, to who became his counselor? Who taught him anything, in other words? Or who has given to him something that he has to pay back? Well, the answer again implied is no one. God did not seek any person's advice. He didn't hire a PR firm when he wrote the Bible. He didn't hire engineers when he created the planets. Now, theologians have another great word for this concept of God's self-sufficiency, and it's called his aseity. Aseity. It means that God doesn't learn anything from anyone, and God is not in debt to anyone, and he owes nothing to no one. Now, many years ago, before I moved to Texas, I actually began my seminary career at New Orleans Baptist Theological Seminary, technically in the Extension Campus in Clinton, Mississippi. I told you last week I used to be a public school teacher. Well, the other part of that story is my principal who hired me was one of my deacons. And he gave me every Monday off and hired a substitute for me because he knew I wanted to go to seminary. And... New Orleans Seminary, 100 miles away, had an extension campus, but it was only one day a week, Monday. 
And so you took whatever they offered on that Monday, and it was all day every Monday. And so every Monday I would go down to the Extension campus, and there was a group of about 50 men, almost all of whom were like me, bivocational country preachers who didn't have much theological education. And our professor was a very distinguished and erudite man, very polished. And I'm sure after about two weeks, he thought, these guys aren't that. <laughs> and so he brought in a friend of his who was an accomplished poet, I guess, to give us a little culture. And so this friend of the professor got a 10-minute introduction, and he began to quote from one of his most famous poems about creation. And within the poem, he stated that God created man because God was lonely all by himself up in heaven. Now, I had a good friend who sat just to the right of me, and I could sense his blood pressure rising. And I knew at the end of this poem, he was going to say something, and sure enough, he did. The man finished his poem and took a bow, and my friend raised his hand, and he said, Good brother. He said, I'm just a country preacher. I don't know anything about poetry. You obviously do, but I know the Lord. And I don't know why God did a lot of things he did, but I know this. He did not create me because he couldn't do without me or that he was lonely. See, God is not deficient in any way. He does nothing out of desperation. God is perfect and content unto himself. Whatever he does, he does it for his own glory. And so the answer to this question, for who has known the, the mind of the Lord? No one. Who has taught God anything? None of us. Who first has given to him that he owes them anything? Not one of us. So those are the two questions. Thirdly and finally, let's look at the four prepositions. Verse 36. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. From him, through him, to him, and to him again are all things. All things means all things. Everything, I take it, that God has created in the universe, he did so for his own glory. Now, many of us have heard the definition of insanity. Doing the same thing the same way over and over and expecting a different result. But Dr. James Boyce, in his commentary on the book of Romans, offers a definition of spiritual insanity. He says, spiritual insanity is when a person believes that he or she is the center of the universe. That is, they wake up in the morning and breathe in the air and exhale it out and they eat food and they go to sleep at night under a warm roof. Their summation of all of those good things in life is they did it. That's insanity spiritually, Boyce says. And he gives the example of a man from the Bible named Nebuchadnezzar. You remember Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon? Some of you studied probably in grade school, the seven wonders of the ancient world, one of which was the Hanging Gardens of Babylon, which he inspired. And the book of Daniel tells the story that one morning, Nebuchadnezzar walks out on the roof of his house, and he looked out over the city which he had built, and this is what he said. The king reflected and says, Is this not Babylon the Great, which I myself have built as a royal residence by the might of my power, and for the glory of my majesty. Now you just, that's humble, right? Just think about the prepositions he used. From him, he said, I built it. Through him, by my mighty power. To him, for the glory of my majesty. Now if you'll come close, I'll tell you a little secret. 
you all that are still in the workforce, you're going to go to work tomorrow morning. You kids that are still in school, you're going to go to school tomorrow morning. And you're going to be surrounded by thousands of little Nebuchadnezzars. People that eat God's good food and breathe God's good air and go to bed under the protection that God provides and they're going to wake up and say, I did it. Now, if they're not absurd enough to say it, they think it and they live that way. We don't want to be that way. In fact, we don't want our children to think that way. We want to develop a biblical and a Christian worldview. And if you want to know what a biblical and Christian worldview is, read this sentence again. From Him, through Him, to Him are all things. Everything is for the glory of God. That is a Christian worldview. And do you know another way to say that? Soli Deo Gloria. And between services, I had privilege of being in our new members class and Brother Tony was going over our six foundational principles at First Baptist Church of Keller. And the overarching and undergirding principle of everything we do here, it's right in our founding documents, is SDG, Soli Deo Gloria. Everything to the glory of God alone. That means everything we sing, everything we teach, every building we build, every ministry we start, is for the expressed aim at bringing glory, that is magnifying and putting God in the spotlight. May it always be. You think, well, what in the world does this have to say to me? I thought you were going to talk about me. All right. Let's have some application today. Three questions. Let me just ask you, what is your worldview? The truth is, not many years before Paul wrote these words, his worldview was... A lot like Nebuchadnezzar's, I think. He was always showing people his resume. Hebrew of the Hebrews, Pharisee of the Pharisees, is touching the law, blameless, zealous, more for the law than all of my peers. Something happened to Paul, though, that changed his worldview in an instant. He saw Jesus. Seeing Jesus will humble you, won't it? See, Paul was on his way to persecute Christians, and God struck him blind on the road to Damascus, and Jesus showed up in his resurrected glory. And like Moses, Paul couldn't handle it. He went down on his face and was literally blind for several days. He said, Lord, what would you have me to do? Paul's worldview changed. He no longer was putting Paul in the spotlight. Everything about him from that moment on was about Jesus. Well, how do you develop a worldview? Parents, how do you help your children, your young person, to develop a biblical and a Christian worldview. Well, it won't happen through the television. It won't happen through the internet. It won't happen by allowing their peers and friends to be the most important influence in their life. When when our staff gets together, one of the topics that we most often talk about is how we can help you all develop a biblical Christian worldview. And hold on to it tightly in a world that's trying to separate us from it. Well, one, you have to commit to it, right? You have to surround yourself and your family with the Word. You have to stay under the consistent teaching of the Word of God day after day, week after week, and year after year. You have to humble yourself. You have to recognize that 
to have a biblical Christian worldview may require me to be an outcast. May require me not to have the corner office. It may require that I won't be the most popular at my school. But I can't think of anything more important than to helping you and your young person develop and hold on to this worldview that Paul articulates here when he says, for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory. Is there anything more antithetical than our cultural worldview than to him be the glory? Because our culture says what? To me be the glory. How can I promote me through Facebook and TikTok and all those things I have no idea what I'm talking about? <laughs> that I hear you talking about. Look what I'm doing. Look who I know. Look who I met. Paul says, from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory. And I'm telling you, if you live your life like that, you'll stand out from the world. And we're supposed to stand out from the world, aren't we? We're to be distinct and different in this world that's dark. Second question, when is the last time, Christian, that you broke out in spontaneous praise? Now, you've all got your bulletin today, your program, and we're told when to stand up and sit down, when to sing, when to read, when to be quiet, and that's okay. God's a God of order. But haven't you found in your Christian life that some of the greatest moments of worship and praise are unplanned. They're just spontaneous. You look over the rim of the Grand Canyon, you praise God if you're a Christian. When your newborn baby is born, you worship. When your grandchild is baptized, you worship, don't you? These are spontaneous moments of praise. And I, I think that's what Paul's doing here. He's climbed this mountain peak of doctrine and he's just overwhelmed and he sits down on a rock and he says, oh, the depth of the riches both of the wisdom and the knowledge. of When's the last time you had a moment like that? I pray that before this Christmas season is over, you'll have a moment like that. Miss Wendy, my uh, assistant, is uh, our offices are separated by a door. I often leave that door open. And she knows when I have a moment like that, because I'll just yell out, praise the Lord. Sometimes she comes wondering, what's wrong? And I have to say, oh, I'm just studying. When I was in high school, I started 10th grade, um, I signed up for a geometry class. And I am terrible at math, just don't understand it. But I was encouraged because I knew the teacher, dear lady, kind, patient. And I thought, if anyone can teach me geometry, it's, it's this lady. Three weeks into the first semester, she was diagnosed with leukemia. She was out the rest of the year. And we lived in rural Arkansas, and believe it or not, geometry teachers do not grow on trees in rural Arkansas. So we did without for quite a few weeks, and finally they hired one of my dad's friends who was a pastor at a local church. And about two minutes into his first class, we realized he knew as much geometry as we did Chinese physics. But he was a good man, and they gave him the job, and he gave us our homework assignment the first night. We went on, had about 10 problems, and one of them was particularly difficult. We came back the next day. He couldn't get the answer, and the class lasted 50 minutes. And for 49 and a half minutes, we sat in silence as he furrowed his brow and scratched his head. 
And finally, right before the bell rang, he said, praise the Lord. He got the answer. And the bell rang and we knew we were in for a long year. But that, that spontaneous praise, when you discover something wonderful and unexpected and mind-blowing, you praise the Lord. You have a doxology, and this is what Paul does. And Brother Matt is so good at reminding us that doxology comes from theology, right? If we don't have that basis of good theology, we praise the Lord. We don't know what we're praising. God wants to be praised in spirit, yes, with enthusiasm, but he wants to be praised in truth. And so I hope you will never view doctrine and theology as an obstacle to your worship. Instead, we should view it as the stepping stone and the foundation upon which true worship is built. And that leads to my final question. How do you plan on worshiping Christ this Christmas season? Now, we have lots of opportunities. Matt's going to tell you about it in a minute. And there's nothing wrong with those things. I look forward to this time of year. There's so many gifted people here and just sit amazed at uh, the talent. But I hope you're not planning on worshiping passively this Christmas, just sitting back and letting the pros handle it. Because remember, I said we have different capacities, don't we? Most of you have way more capacity musically than I do, I assure you. But the Bible says, if we don't praise him, the very rocks are going to cry out. Will you commit with me, one who can't sing or play an instrument, that you're not going to let the rocks do what God has called us to do this Christmas season. Let's join together actively and spend this Christmas season reflecting on the wisdom and the knowledge of God and do as Paul did. Praise the Lord. Let's sing. Let's pray, brother. We'll sing after we pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for uh, your goodness. Thank you for the 11th chapter of Romans. Father, this entire section, 9, 10, and 11, is just rich with doctrine. In fact, the entire book up until this point is. Father, thank you that Paul didn't rush into application. He took the time at the top of the mountain to survey your beauty and wonder and he led us to praise. Oh, oh, the beauty of the wisdom and knowledge of God. And Father, the summary of all worship is that you are the center of it. From you, to you, through you are all things. Help us never to be little Nebuchadnezzar's Lord, taking the credit that only you deserve. May you receive all praise and honor, not just at Christmas, every day of the year. Lord, I pray if there's one here today who knows you not, would you draw them to saving faith? Would you help them to know that your knowledge and wisdom is displayed in the gospel message? That Jesus died for sinners and whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Father, would you encourage the hearts of believers here today? Would you inspire all of us to worship in spirit and in truth? Thank you, Father, for revealing yourself to us. And though we don't have the capacity to know you completely yet, thank you, Father, that you gave us the knowledge of the gospel that we can be saved and be called children of God. Father, whatever good you accomplish in and through us, we give you the credit and praise for it. In Jesus' name and for his sake, amen. 
Thank you again for listening to our broadcast. To learn more about First Baptist Church in Keller, Texas, or to hear more sermons by Pastor Keith and our staff, visit us online at fbckeller.org.